Well, if you will, please take your Bible and open it to the book of Matthew chapter 12, and we will remain standing, if you can, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 12, and today we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 45 of Matthew chapter 12, 43, 44, and 45. And Jesus is still speaking, and he says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept, empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. This is God's Word. So after a, a break last week, we return to our normal exposition walking through the book of Matthew. And I want to try to explain what's happening and just remind us of the context of what has taken place. In this chapter, Jesus has scolded the scribes and the Pharisees concerning particular errors that they have made in their judgments of Him. So in verses 1-14, through they called Him and His disciples out concerning how they were living and acting on the Sabbath day. And how they were saying, you're not observing the Sabbath properly. Jesus pointed out their errors there. In uh, verses 22 through 37, Jesus heals a man and they attribute his power to Satan. And he calls them out for committing the unpardonable sin of of being able to see blatantly right in front of their eyes the power of God and, and knowing that this is what it is but still refusing to submit to God's power. In verses 38 through 42, they come to Jesus and they're asking Him for another sign as if they hadn't already seen enough. And He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation. And He's pointing out the sinfulness of their immediate actions, of their interpretations of the Scripture. Now, as we move forward, I want to make a positive assertion about what we're going to learn And then I'm going to explain that. As we move forward into these these three verses specifically, Jesus is addressing in a more general sense the wickedness of these men. He he has pointed out particulars. You've got the Sabbath wrong. You're wanting to see signs. You're attributing my work to the work of Satan. He's pointed out particulars. Now he wants to kind of zoom out and show a general view of what their problem is. And it's not just these men, when he says evil generation, oftentimes he's referring to all of rebellious Israel. Israel that had rejected Jesus. Now I want to explain that. This section, these three verses, is a parable. Jesus is using a parable. And he's going to show us that it isn't just these things. It isn't just the fact that they have the Sabbath wrong. And it isn't just the fact that they want to see a sign. It isn't just these particulars that he's 
caught them in and all of a sudden they look sinful. It's actually everything leading up to this point. As a matter of fact, the entire history of Israel has primed the pump for this generation and their opposition to God and His Messiah has primed the pump for satanic power in opposition to God's power. Now, I say all of history has led up to this point in in Jesus' life. Think about this with me. What if Jesus would have showed up on the scene, began to teach and to preach with authority, began to cast out demons and do miracles, and everybody said, great, the Messiah is here. And that was it. They just accepted Him and worshipped Him. Where would we be? We would be without a salvation. There, There would be no sacrifice for sins. He wouldn't have gone to the cross if they would have just received Him with open arms. So that's why I say all of history has been leading up to this point where they will reject Him, leading to Calvary. So it has to be this way. And God has been doing all of this throughout history to bring us to the point where Jesus comes on the scene. All of Scripture bears, it sets on this this needle point of the ministry of Jesus. And God has been doing these things throughout history to, to prepare the way for Jesus. And the reason that we call the work of Jesus or the life of Jesus gospel, that is good news, is because up until that point, and even since that point, apart from Christ, human history is, is abysmal. It's, it's just negative. It's bad all the way up to this point. And apart from Christ, all it is is bad. And then we look at Jesus and we say, finally, good news. Finally, gospel. So that's what's happening here. And Jesus is telling these men, it's not just this scribe over here and, and that Pharisee there. It's all of you. All of this evil generation. Now the specific point or the specific problem that Jesus is going to point out to them is this. And this is the one point. If you get anything else, or if you get nothing else today, get this. This is the main point of what we're going to learn. Partial or incomplete or fragmented religious reformation or we might say moral change, although it is a step in the right direction, if it is left unfinished and incomplete, it will leave you in a worse condition than when you began. That's the point. Picture this. And I know Nick and Tiffany will get this very well. Picture you want to remodel your house. You've got some things you want to do. And you get excited one day. Hey, the money's in the bank. We're ready to do this. So you just get excited and you just start ripping out stuff, floors out, windows out, shingles are coming off, major appliances are coming out, and then it's 8 o'clock and you're like, oh, well, it's time to go to bed. And you have to go to sleep in a house that has appliances missing, windows are gone. At that point, you are worse than if you would have just left it, at least before you had windows. Not that you guys are in that position, but you've, you've done the house thing. You, you understand that condition is worse than if you would have just left it the way it was. And some of you here, uh, perhaps, you've, you've made changes. You're, you're trying really hard. You're, you're doing better. But if it just stays that way, if it's just, I'm just trying, I'm just trying to make changes, then you're going to end up worse than when you began. If, if you're not a Christian, then, then you've never been born again. You're just 
trying to muster up the effort. If you are a Christian, our tendency is to, to make little changes and think, I'm there, I made it, I've got it. I'm, and, and, that's, and, and Jesus is saying, no, you don't get there until you're glorified in heaven. And, and I've made this comment before, we, we, we use the term reformed to describe our theology when it really should just be reforming. We haven't reached a point. We, we left Roman Catholicism, and so we are reformed, but, but we're not done. We're always making these changes. We're always going back to the Word of God and, and looking at ourselves like a mirror and saying, okay, now what needs to be changed? Now what needs to be changed? And that, that again is for the Christians. And the majority of this will be addressed to the Christians. And I will address the non-Christians at the end. So verse 43, look with me there. Jesus says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person. Now this sounds really out of place. If you were just reading through Matthew straight through, he talks about the queen of Sheba rising up. He talks about the, the, the men of Nineveh rising up at the judgment and, and how he is greater than Jonah, how he is greater than Solomon. And then all of a sudden, when the unclean spirit has gone out. It seems really out of place, and, and I hope that I'm not the only one who feels that way. So I want to try to let you see how this flows. In Luke's gospel, he actually puts it in a different order, um, th these sayings of Jesus, but it all stays in close proximity. I believe the intent here is Jesus is using the events of verse 22, the healing of a demon-oppressed man, and his reference to entering a house and plundering the goods as a reference to Jesus' spiritual power, I think Jesus is using those two points as a, as a sort of a launching pad into this teaching because that concept is fresh on their minds. They've just seen a demon cast out. Jesus had just referenced, referenced a, a house divided and, and plundering the goods of a strong man as a parallel to his own uh, conquering of the kingdom of Satan. And so we have this parable, this picture of an unclean spirit that is a demon, a fallen angel, or an old Bible translation would say a devil. And this demon, this unclean spirit, has gone out in any way. It, 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 this is a parable. Remember, in a parable, you don't take every little piece and try to spiritualize it. So he's just gone out. He's either been cast out or he just decided to leave. For whatever reason, the demon has left. I would imagine, considering the context, that you could probably picture that it's been cast out, but it really doesn't matter because that's not the point. The demon, the unclean spirit, the devil, has gone out of a person that it was previously oppressing. So we've talked about demon possession. They come in, they, they take over. This man that was healed in chapter 22, he was blind and mute because of demon oppression. So this is what demons do. He's come in and he has gone out. Jesus says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Now remember, again, what we know about demons. Demons are, are spiritual beings. They're fallen angels. They're not physical creatures. You, you can't touch a demon. So when it talks about waterless places, it's not talking about a literal, arid environment where there is no water. This is spiritual. 
waterless places. In this time period, this was an agrarian society. They lived off of the land. Everything was off of the land. If you wanted to build a society or a civilization, the number one thing you must have is water. You have to have water. If there's not a river or a creek or a stream or a sea, then you start digging wells because you have to have water. Your animals can't live without water. You can't live without your animals. You can't farm the land without animals. You can't wear clothes without animals. You can't eat meat without animals. They have to have water. And you have to have water because that's what our bodies live off of. So, so there would have been no permanent settlements away from water. If there were traveling caravans, they would have moved. But they, that's why they had the, the, the skins, the animal skins that they would store water in. So water in Scripture is oftentimes just a reference to life source, source of life, sustenance. So in a literal sense, if we were thinking of a waterless place, we would just imagine a desert, a wilderness area, a place of desolation, a place where there is no nourishment. And ultimately, waterless means or leads to death. A good example of this in Revelation 18.2 says he called, with, called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So this picture of Babylon falling, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. So this is just, this, this place has become a desolation and, and it becomes the habitation of demons. That's a physical waterless place, a desolation. So if we put this into the spiritual sense, we have just an inhospitable place, a place of no satisfaction, a place with no life source, no long-term sustainability in this spiritual realm. In other words, the demon has gone out of a man, he's wandering around the spiritual realm in a type of uninhabitable wilderness. He can't stay there. He has to find somewhere else to go and to settle down. And that's why it says he passes through waterless places seeking rest. His desire is not to continually pass through waterless places. He wants to find somewhere where he can rest. He wants to stop and find a place of comfort where he can stay, a place of ease. But it says he finds none. Of course, waterless places, lifeless places, there's going to be no place of rest. This is sort of a, the definition of a waterless place is there's no place to rest. You're not going to find it here, and so he must move on. Now, think about demons again, what we know about demons. Rest to us and rest to a demon are completely different. See, when we think of rest, we think of going home, kicking off our shoes, putting on our house clothes, sitting down in a recliner, whatever. That's what we think of when we think of rest, relaxation. But for a demon who has no hope of salvation, their only delight and their only goal until they are thrown into the lake of fire is to wreak havoc, to destroy, to tear down, to cause destruction. Think about this. Even sinful men, even if they reject Christ, in their minds, they are thinking they have some sort of a hope. Usually their hope is there is no God. They're just hoping there is no God. Or they have a, a, a false understanding of judgment and they are just hoping there will be no judgment. But they have some sort of a hope. A demon 
The demons know more about God than we do. And they know judgment is coming. They know they are a defeated foe. And so they have no hope. They have nothing to look forward to whatsoever. And so they live to cause destruction, to tear down, to destroy, to cause affliction, to wreak havoc. That is rest to a demon. For a demon to find a place of rest is to find another place to destroy the work of God, to torment souls. That is joy for a demon. That is rest and ease for a demon. So a demon has gone out in this parable. The spiritual application is this. This is the picture that's being painted. When a demon goes out, that is a picture of the, uh, the evacuation, I guess you could say, or the addressing of the most obvious spiritual need. The immediate problem has been dealt with. We've, we've seen demon possessions in the Gospels. And the demons, when they show up, they, they, they cause other problems. A man does, doesn't just walk around and say, I've got a demon inside of me. No, they're, they're living in the tombs. They're shrieking. They're cutting themselves. They're, they're blind and mute. The, the demons cause havoc and they, they wreak havoc on people. And so a demon going out is the most obvious problem in the, the miracle that we read about in, in verse 22. The man is blind and mute. Jesus doesn't start saying, well, how can we get rid of this blindness? We've got to deal with the blindness first. Now, let's do the muteness first. So you can... No, he just casts out the demons. That fixes the other problem. He gets rid of the most obvious problem first. In the spiritual realm, the demon is looking for a place to cause trouble, and he can't find none because he has been cast out. The, the most obvious problem has been uh, dealt with, I guess you could say. In, in, in another uh, word picture, if we use a house... Okay, if a house is on fire, you, you come home, your house is burning, you're not going to run inside and start sweeping up ashes and try to wipe down your counters. You call the fire department so they can put out the fire and then you address the other issues. You, you get rid of the obvious issue first. That's what's happening with this demon. It has gone out. The obvious problem is fixed. And then verse 44. Look with me there. It says... Then it says, this is the demon talking now, I will return to my house from which I came. So the demon has sort of a, a coming to himself moment. You remember the prodigal son? You know, he was there eating the, the food of the pigs, the swine, and he, he came to himself. He said, hey, I'll just go back home. This is what happens with the demon. He's looking for water. He's in waterless places. He's looking for rest. He finds none. He says, well, I guess I'll just go back home. He says, from which I came. So we know that he's talking about the person from whom he has just left. And he says, my house. So this demon considers the person that it had just left its home. Again, a home to us is a place of comfort, a place of rest, of relaxation. A home or house for a demon is the person that it afflicts. It enjoys to be there. It delights to be there. That's where he resides. He chooses to dwell there because that is where he finds comfort and joy in destroying and causing affliction. And look what happens. Jesus says, and when it comes, so it's come to its house, it finds its house, or finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Now again, this is not hypothetical. It doesn't say 
if the demon finds his house clean. No, it says it does. This is a description of the event in the parable. Jesus is not teaching us about demon activity. He's teaching something different. He's, he's getting to a point. And so it's not hypothetical as if, well, let's just hope that he doesn't find it empty. What Jesus says, it will find it empty. The house will be empty, swept, and put in order. It will be uninhabited. No one else will be living there. It will be swept and put in order. It will be cleaned. Everything will be arranged just right. It will be orderly. Another word picture helps with, with the house here. Some of you, if you were wise and had the, the time, you prepared yesterday for today because you knew the Lord's day was coming. And so yesterday, you straightened things up, cleaned the house, at least maybe did the dishes or put the dishes in the dishwasher to be ready. So when you go home today, your house, when you walk in, it will be clean. And you'll get to sit down and relax and rest and worship as we do on the Lord's Day. And you're probably not going to get into a whole lot else today. If you've got children, this might be a little different. But for, for the average uh, family or people, person, you're going to go to work tomorrow. You'll go to, night, to bed tonight. And then you'll get up tomorrow and you'll go to work all day. And you'll come home and your house will still be clean. It will still be fairly Put in order, okay? Now, if you're like me, there isn't a much greater delight and joy than walking into the house and, and noticing I don't have to do anything. Like, I, I don't have to kick toys out of the way and move stuff off of a chair. I, I can just come in and relax. Others of you, if you didn't clean, then when you go home, you've got a mess waiting for you, and it's just going to be there. You're going to be busy today. You're going to go to work tomorrow. You're going to be busy tomorrow. It's going to be there tomorrow evening. You're going to be tired when you get home from work and you're not going to want to do it, but you're going to have to do it. All of those things which could have been avoided by preparing on Saturday for the Lord's Day. But this is, this, this is what happens with this demon. He comes home to his house, this person, and he sees it's clean, it's prepared, it's, it's put in order. So what does he do? Verse 45. Then... It goes and brings with it seven other demons, more evil than itself, or seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. Now, in Scripture, in, these, in, in Hebrew writings, numbers don't just mean numbers, that there are meanings for different numbers. The number seven is the number of completion in, in Hebrew writing. So the idea here is that this this spirit has gone, this demon has gone, and he brings back with him a totality, a, com a complete fullness of wicked spirits, of a complete oppression. It says more evil than itself. So things don't just come back to normal. They're actually worse than they were before. These demons cause more trouble than before. And it says that they come, they enter, and they dwell there. Now, this word dwell does not mean that they're just hanging out or that they're crashing for the night. There's, there's a word dwell, oikeo, which would be translated dwell, but then there's kata oikeo, which means to, to settle down. Kata means down. So the, this, is, this is my shoes are off, i got a drink in my hand, my toothbrush and toothpaste are on the sink, I, I'm relaxing, I'm staying here, this is my house. These demons have settled in. And why can they do this? 
because the house was empty. It was swept. It was put in order. Nobody was living there. It was presentable. It looked like a great place to dwell. And this other demon comes and invites him. There was no current resident. Now remember, the demon leaving was the most obvious and immediate issue. But we, what we don't read, and this is the point of the parable, what, what is left out is that nothing else happened. The demon just left, and then he came right back. Nothing happened to the house after he had gone. No one else had moved in. It was just an empty house, an empty soul, waiting to be inhabited by whomever would come and take up residence there. And so when we begin to unpack just the parable itself, we begin to see what Jesus is pointing out here. Jesus is speaking of the, the dreadful circumstance or situation of a person who has made certain moral adjustments and they believe that these little moral adjustments are sufficient for godliness, but they have fallen short of a full reformation of the heart and the soul. Not only are they lacking in reform, now they've actually made themselves more susceptible to oppression, to wickedness, to sin. And that's why he says in the last state of that person is worse than the first. Because now there is full and complete oppression. They have no intentions of leaving. They have settled down. Before it was just one, he would come and go. Now it's seven and they're staying. Worse than it was before. Several weeks ago when we looked at the unpardonable sin, we used Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 6 as a parallel. And I think that is explaining exactly what happens here. I'll read this. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. They've experienced all these things. They were never truly regenerate. They're never truly born again, but they had these experiences. And this type of person has fallen away. And he's saying, if you've experienced all that, if you've, if, if you've had these little glimpses, little bits and pieces of, of, of Christianity or of religion or of God, whatever you want to call it, if you've had these little pieces... You've experienced it and seen it with your eyes and you can still just walk away. What he says is it's impossible to restore them unto repentance. Now that is a person who it says is, has fallen away. They've left this closeness to God. In this parable, the person that we're talking about isn't given, given much of a role here. They're, the focus is on the demon and what he's doing um, and, the, and the person is more passive. This type of person has become inoculated to true and full change. And so they've become calloused. And they're under the impression that previous experience or, or little changes, little moral adjustments are enough. They're satisfied with outward changes. And practically, they are immune to true change. They would think, well, I've, I've seen all that. I've been there. You've probably talked to people who said, well, I, I've tried Christianity, it just didn't work for me. You don't try Christianity. You either are a Christian, you're born again and you remain that way, or you've never truly been born again. You, you 
tasted of the Holy Spirit. You've seen some of these things. You saw the goodness of the Word of God, but you were never truly born again. And if you can see all those things and, and think that's enough, think you're okay with what you've experienced or what you're doing, then you've become immune to a full change. You're worse than you were when you began. And Matthew ends with this. Luke doesn't add this. Matthew ends with this. And remember, Matthew is a Jewish person writing to Jewish people. He says, so it will be, or so also will it be with this evil generation. So Jesus has described what has happened with these men, and he has described what is happening with the nation of Israel as a whole. They've made moral adjustments, outwardly, outward adjustments. And they are under the impression that because they have done those things, they are now acceptable before God. But they have actually fallen short of God's true standard, which Jesus says you must be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And at this point, as Jesus speaks with them, they're worse off than they started because at this point they are so wicked that they are in the middle of rejecting the very Son of God, plotting to crucify and kill the Son of God. That's, that's far worse than just, well, I'm not sure right now. Later in, in Matthew chapter 23, we'll read this. This is Jesus pronouncing woes on the scribes and the Pharisees, curses on them. And he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Notice the language, for you clean the outside of the cup, the external, obvious, the visible of the cup and the plate. But inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. He goes into another one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Do you see what, what's happening with these people? They were obsessed with the outward. They were obsessed with the visible with what everyone thought of them. Inwardly, however, they were ravenous wolves. They were, they were full of dead men's bones, wicked, greedy, unclean, filled with rotting flesh, Jesus says, like a tomb. That's the problem with these men. Now we take this into a bigger, bigger scope. Unbelieving Israel. And think about the history of Israel leading up to this point. God calls Abraham... A pagan, not a worshiper of God, not a Jew, not an Israelite. He was just Abraham of Ur of the Chaldees. God calls him, gives him a promise. Then God will later rescue the Israelites out of Egypt. He will meet them at Mount Sinai. He will give them the law. And what do they do? While Moses is still on the mountain, what do they do? They rebel. They fall into idolatry. They worship God by manner of a golden calf. 
while God is giving the law, you shall not make unto me any graven image. And then the rest of the Old Testament, as you read, is, is not a whole lot more than the story of Israel falling in and out of idolatry over and over and over and constantly being called back by the prophets. Constantly being brought back into repentance and then they rebel. And then there's repentance and then they rebel. The prophets come, they're warning them of impending doom. And then eventually, they are taken into captivity. They're in captivity. Then a remnant is released, allowed to go back to Jerusalem to, to build the wall, to rebuild the temple, to reestablish worship. And that remnant seems to have learned from the rebellion of their ancestors. Because the Jews never fell back into pagan idolatry, ever. Think about that. For, for all those years, it was, they were constantly going after the other gods of the nations. When they come out of captivity, they never fall back into that. And to this day, they're not, they're not into pagan idolatry. They, they believe they're worshiping Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the, the God we worship. But the problem is, they fell into an idolatry of their own religious observance. So they, had, they had made these great changes, great reforms. Outwardly, they were pious. They held to a very meticulous observance of the law. We've studied this, actually creating laws so that they don't get close to the law that God had given. But in all of that, they had fallen short of what God actually required for salvation, which was faith in the Messiah. And they were at this place where their religious observance, their changes, their morality, their status as religious leaders in this system has blinded them to the truth of the Messiah to where they don't even see it. They can't even see the wickedness. They're so blind, in fact, that, like I said earlier, that they're ready to kill him. They want him dead. They are worse off now than Abraham was if God would have just left him in earth and never called him. He, they're worse off now than if God would have just left them in Egypt. And even the Israelites, when they got out of Egypt, remember what the, one chapter later they were already complaining about why did you bring us out in Egypt? Because there were no graves there? You brought us out here to die in the wilderness? They were better off then than these men are at this point because they had made these little changes, little reforms. They had cleaned the outside of the cup, cleaned the plates, and they were presentable publicly, but inside, full of dead men's bones, wicked, rebellious, evil, ready to kill Jesus. So where do we stand in this process? In this, with this, we take this concept of this parable and apply it to our lives. Where do we stand? That's what we have to ask ourselves when we read these, these passages. There are common misconceptions about Christianity. A lot of people say, well, Christianity is about finding sin, finding what God calls sin, and just get rid of it. Or find problems, find issues, and, and fix them in your life. Christianity is about making sure the most obvious problems are squelched. And if we're honest, where we are here, the Bible Belt, we're really good at this. We can do this. We can put on a show and convince anybody. The closest people to us, we can convince them that we are holy, holy, holy because we are good at finding the sins 
finding the issues and fixing those. We're good at putting off sin. We're good at making moral changes. We're good at getting rid of the proverbial demon, the obvious problem. We're good at taking out the trash and and sweeping the house and straightening the furniture so that if someone were to come in and, and peer in the window, we look great. But the problem is we're, we're uninhabited. We're, we're swept and put in order. We're ready for anything else to come in. Because the problem is this. Christianity, if you're a Christian, the Christian life is not just about putting off sin. That is a big part of it. We are to be killing sin. Or sin will be killing you. We are to do that. But being a true Christian is also about putting on Christ. There's two sides to this coin. See, we don't just stop and say, well, I stopped doing that. We actually take on Christ. And the best way to explain this is to walk through several Bible verses and let you see this in action. And and it's it's almost embarrassing when you go to Scripture because there's nothing you can search here. This thing that I have deemed the put-off, put-on principle. This is what I have on my paper. You can't search that, Google the put-off, put-on principle. You just have to, this is what I did, literally start flipping through the imperative sections of the epistles and just just read them. It's it's almost every time there is a command. You could apply this principle and you'll see what I'm talking about. The first one is not as easy to notice, but it, it is good. In Mark chapter 1 verse 15, Jesus is preaching and he says, The time is filled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe the gospel. Repent. Turn away from sin. Change your mind about sin. Hate your sin. That's the negative. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and believe the gospel. That's a positive belief. That's putting your faith in something outside of yourself. So there's the put off. But then there's the put on. There's the negative and then there's the positive. Romans chapter 12 verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. There's your negative. Don't be like the world. Here's the positive. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So it's not just don't be like the world. We got that. Usually we can can put that stuff in order, especially around our church friends. We can put that stuff in order and say, well, I'm not like the world. I'm not not transformed. Be conformed to the world. I don't do that. No, 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 no. I'm not conformed to the world. The problem is, are you really being transformed by the renewing of your mind? How often is your mind that nobody can see, that nobody can hear, how often is that mind consumed with God and His holiness and His greatness and learning of Him? Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Here's the negative, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Now, I would imagine most of us have not spent our past seven days in orgies and sensuality. I would imagine we've got those things pretty down pat, but then he continues. And here's the actual wording. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So it's not just, yeah, I've stopped doing that. He said, no, don't even do anything you want to do. Put on Jesus and do what He wants you to do. Live by His commands. Here's another one, Galatians 5.13. 
This would be dealing with Christian liberty as we call it. Do not use your freedom, Christian liberty, as an opportunity for the flesh. That is yourself. Now this is what we usually do. I've got freedom. So I'm going to do this because that's what, what we're thinking in our mind is because that's what I want to do. And I'm a Christian so I can defend it by using my Christian freedom. What he's saying is do not use whatever you call Christian liberty. Don't use that for yourself. The purpose of that is that but through love serve one another. Here's your Christian freedom. As Christians, we are set free to serve everybody else and not ourselves. That's Christian liberty. See, there's the negative and there's the positive. Or another one, Ephesians chapter 4. And you can just read through Ephesians 4 and it's just powerful. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to, here it is, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is writing to Christians and he's saying, put off your old self. Get rid of your sinfulness and put on Christ. Live in a way that is dictated by Christ. Put on a holiness. God is trying to remake you into something new to stop living like something old. There's the negative and there's the positive. Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal. There's your negative. Are you a thief? Have you stolen something this week? Well, we can say, no. No, I didn't steal. I don't steal. I'm not a thief. Well, here's the positive. But rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. There's your positive. Stop stealing. Yes, don't steal. But the flip side of that is earn money so that you can serve others and share with anyone who is in need. Ephesians 5.18 Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now I would imagine most of us could come in and say, you know what, I really have not struggled with being drunk with wine this week. That's not my issue. And we feel like we are so good because we just don't, I'm not struggling with being drunk with wine. But if I asked you, how often this week can you, can you tell me I was filled with the Holy Spirit of God on my, in my daily life? That I wake up in the morning and, I, and I'm in prayer with God, asking Him, please fill me with your Spirit. Lead me in the Spirit. See, we're so good at putting off, but we don't put on. We stop and we think, I'm there because I've stopped. And he says, no, be filled with the Spirit. And that's different than when we become Christians and we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. This is a daily renewal, taking up the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, yielding to the Spirit and how He would guide our lives. The last one from Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. There's your negative. I'm not selfish. I'm not conceited. I would never do that. that that's our attitude. We're, we're, I'm not a selfish person. But here's the positive. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. How many of us could say that we do that? That I count the people around me more significant than myself? See, we're good at not being conceited and not being selfish, but how good are we at being others-ish? 
Counting others more significant than ourselves. Looking to them first. See, there's always the positive. And if we begin to think that just because we've done the negative, that we've put off, that we're good, we fall into this error. We fall into this grave error. That thinking Christianity and the Christian life is just putting off sin. Putting off worldly habits. Getting rid of unproductive habits. And this will ultimately lead us to a monastic way of life, a a kind of seclusion from society where we live in a monastery and we have nothing to do except sit and copy the Bible. And we say, well, I'm holy. I don't have anything to do with the world. I don't do those things. God has not called us out of the world in that manner. He's called us to be in the world, but not of it. To live holy lives within the world. The Christian life is not only putting off sin, it's putting on Christ. It's not just reformation, it is regeneration. It is taking up godly habits, doing godly things, striving to be like Jesus in our daily conversation or our lifestyle. Be like Jesus. And we all have a tendency to think this way. Because if we're honest, it is much easier for us to lay aside bad habits that other people are going to judge us for. It's much easier to do that than to strive with the Holy Spirit over things that we know we should be doing. And when I say striving with the Holy Spirit, that would be studying the Word of God to see what the Spirit has to say. Looking inside of ourselves and saying, does that apply to me? Where am I here? Am I doing this? Confessing, God, I have not done this. I am a sinner. Asking for repentance. Grant me the power to turn from this. That is the hard work. That is striving with the Spirit. Looking at yourself and saying, I need help because I can't live the Christian life on my own. So as a church, we would apply this to us. These are our tendencies. We say things like this. Or we could, we could fall into this mindset. We are, we are traditional and simplistic. We don't fall into that attractional, flashy nonsense. Oh, oh, you got a band. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, we don't do that. We, we try to keep our stuff simple and focus on the Lord. We are reformed. We are a reformed church. We're not your, your typical American evangelifish, no doctrinal backbone church. We are reformed. We're confessional. We have our history. I can trace my history back to the Apostle John. We are family integrated. No, we don't drive our church by the programs. We don't fragment families when we come to worship. We, we worship together as families. We are a regulative principle church. We don't fill our services with theatrics and dances and, and this stuff. We are, we, we, we are governed by the Word of God. See, If we're careful, we will begin to think that because we've done all of those things, which are good, they are right, we believe. We believe they are based in Scripture. But we will begin to think that because we've done those things, that we're there. We've got it. We've made it. But they are not. These things are not the totality of the life of the church. We have to ask ourselves other questions like this. How reliant on the Holy Spirit are we really? I mean, anybody can come and set up a sound system, learn four chords on a guitar and sing some songs. Anybody can do that and call it worship. How how reliant are we on Saturday and Sunday morning? Are we begging God to meet with us? 
Saying, God, if your spirit doesn't show up, we've wasted our time. We need you. How much time are we spending in prayer over lost and dying souls in our community? How many of us have identified our spiritual giftedness and are putting them to work within the body, to edify the body? If you're a member of the church, you signed a contract saying you would do this. To upbuild and support the body. How is our church doing in advancing the gospel locally and globally? See, these questions are the hard questions that we have to wrestle with. This is not Paul's church. This is not Paul Baptist church. This is you guys. We are the church. So we have to wrestle with these things. How are we doing? Let's gauge ourselves and ask ourselves, are we really putting on this title? Are we, are we putting on the bridal gown that God has given us and wearing well the title, Bride of Christ? Because that's what we are. We're not just a group of people who stopped doing A, B, and C. And we could take this to an individual level. As individuals, Christians, we have this tendency. Oh, well, I used to do this, 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 and this, but I, I stopped that a long time ago. You know, God, God, God saved me out of that, so I stopped doing it. Well, what do you do? I used to read all those books, but now I, I see that they're full of bad theology, and so I stopped reading those books. Or I used to listen to that preacher, but I realized the error in his exegesis, and so I no longer listen to that preacher. I used to watch that show, but I don't watch it anymore. Again, it's really easy for us to just identify errors and find things that are wrong and get rid of them, but we're not putting anything else back in its place. And we truly miss out on experiencing and knowing God. Not knowing about God, but knowing what it feels like to walk in the Spirit of God and to commune with Him. So there's questions in your daily life. Are you pursuing that knowledge of God? Do you do it because you realize that you're lost without it? Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And so you realize eternal life consists in knowing God. Is that why you do it? Or do you do it because you like to know big words? In your daily reading. Again, do you do it because you like to know terminology and facts and, and points of, of argument? Or do you do it because your heart burns to meet with God? If you listen to preachers or read sermons or blogs or articles, do you do it because you just like how they disagree with others? Or do you do it because you admire the passion these men have and you want to have that same passion that, that they have so that you know that when they die, there will be another generation who stands boldly on Christian truth? Now that you've cut out that, that whatever it is, that television show, I don't watch that anymore. But deep down, do you really want to? You see, that's the sin problem. I really just want to. I don't watch it, but I want to. See, when we fix sin, we, we, we repent of our, our mindset. We change our minds, and so we say, I don't want it. That is an abomination to God. I abhor sin because God abhors sin. See, that's putting on Christ. And again, these are tough questions that we all have to wrestle with. This is the hard part of being a Christian. It's easy for us to say, well, I don't cuss anymore, or as much as I used to. In contrast to this, here's another common error that we make, and this is big for us, is we tend to hear this type of stuff, and we kind of swell up with a false humility. 
false humility. Well, hey, you are right, preacher. You are right. You are. You've got it, man. I just, I just, man. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. You're the best. I'm the worst. You're good looking. I'm not attractive. Uh, we just. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just. I'm just. I'm bad, preacher. You're right. Nobody's perfect. I'm a sinner. See, we fill up with that, and we think God is pleased with my humility. He does want us to humble ourselves and hate our sin, but He doesn't want, want you to just say, well, you know, you know, nobody's perfect. He wants you to strive and to work and to, to put on Christ and to live, do life as a Christian. And we think that these things are sufficient and we don't make this conscious effort. Another thing I was thinking about this week, and I don't know how long this is going to go. Um, have you ever noticed dry spells in your Christian life? And this is, this is I think, is, is key to being a Christian, is noticing dry spells. You look at your life, and you just notice that your walk with God is just lacking. It's just dry. It's just like, God, you're not feeling it. You don't, it doesn't work. You know something's wrong, but you can't put your finger on the problem. So, so you go to, pray, go to God in prayer, and you beg God to meet with you. And you pray, and you pray, and it's just like, I'm just, I'm just saying this. I don't even feel like I'm praying, but I'm not going to get up, God, until I know you have met with me. See, this is the Christian experience. It's not just, well, I prayed my prayer, and you know, times are, I'm just going about my day. The Christian notices these things because we are digging deep into the wells of our souls to make our calling and election sure. That's what the Bible says. So when you test yourself to see whether you are of the faith, you're going to begin to notice these waterless places and you will want to go home to your Savior. You want to meet with Him and you are ready to strive and to work and to put in the effort that it takes to meet with God. And so when we realize that our partial reformation and our incomplete transformation aren't sufficient, we will endeavor to be sanctified. We want to be more like Him. We hunger and we thirst for righteousness. Now, if you're not a Christian, then, then your experience is different and your condition is, is bad. It's, it's worse. You're, you're like these Pharisees. You might think, well, I, I, I've come to church today and I've been trying to read my Bible and, and I'm, I'm getting along with people and I'm, I'm trying to be a better person. And you think that those things are a part of this reformation. In other words, you've began to sweep, you've began to put furniture in order and you think, well, I'm on the right path. I'm getting there, you know? One of these days, I will achieve Christian. And that's false. If you're not a Christian, the first step for the unbeliever is, is realizing I'm a sinner, I have no righteousness, and I have to call out to Christ for His righteousness, to be justified by His righteousness. You need regeneration, not just reformation. You, you need to be reborn, not just refocused. You need to be converted, not just conform to the lifestyle of the people in, in the room. So for the non-Christian, the, the, the good news is Christ has already achieved our righteousness before God. As Christians, when we talk about this lifestyle, we're not doing it to earn heaven. We're doing it because we love our Lord and we want to please Him. We want to be made into His image. Christ has already taken care of our righteousness. But we must first repent and believe this truth. When the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and He takes up residence and He begins to dwell there, the Holy Spirit dwells there, it's not empty anymore. The demon can't look in and say, 
All right, boys, let's go. It's empty. There's, there's already someone there. And it begins with trusting in Christ alone for salvation. So don't fall into the trap as an individual, as a family, as a church. Let's not fall into the trap of thinking that we have arrived, that we're there. This is the biggest group we've had in a month. We're not there. We all have much work to be done if we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. But as Christians, we can have hope because He has promised He will finish the work that He has begun in us. He's faithful to bring it through to completion. And for that, we are forever grateful. And we are to strive. Let's pray.